Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. I'll be bringing you the latest science news along with Helen Scales. Coming up, how dolphins really do fly through the water. Now scientists have uncovered the secret behind some of the dolphins' amazing aquatic acrobatics. They have flippers, it turns out, that work in the same way as a delta wing. And those are the characteristic triangular-shaped wings on fighter jet planes. And also on that amazing feat of 20th century engineering, Concorde. And why sharks are like serial killers. And it turns out that they actually lurk around in spots that don't necessarily guarantee them the best chance of encountering a seal, which is their favourite food, but they also try and minimise the chances that the seals will spot them before they launch an attack, and they also take into account where other sharks are as well. Plus, what a distorted picture of Margaret Thatcher can tell us about the evolution of face recognition. We read The Mind of a Pigeon in Flight, and Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to the birth of Nobel Prize winner Hans Spiemann in 1869. That's all on the way. We've got lots of news from the animal kingdom today, as is Helen and Amai's want. And in particular, research from Emory University shows that we and our ancestors have been recognising faces in much the same way for at least 30 million years. By watching how rhesus macaques respond to a well-known optical illusion called the Thatcher effect, Professor Robert Hampton and colleagues were able to determine that these monkeys, just like us, recognise faces not because we compare them to an idealised picture of a face, but because of the relationship between the different features. So what is this Thatcher effect? Well, it's an optical illusion that many of you will have seen before. I've actually got a picture of it here as well, Helen. It's created by taking a picture of a face and then you cut out the eyes and the mouth and turn them upside down. Okay, we've got a picture here of a we chap have, with yeah. quite long hair, but uh, all yes. right. So on the top here, we've got ones where the eyes have been cut out and turned round, is that right? Yes, the top ones are the thatcherized ones. Now, if you look at that with the whole head upside down... So his head is upside down, and that looks fine to me. It, it looks, looks fairly normal. Quite reasonable, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's certainly nothing wrong with that, yeah. But then if we turn it round... Oh, my God! <laughs> it looks very different. That's so strange. It just looks completely different when the face is the right way up. But the eyes and the mouth are upside down. He looks he, he looks very evil, it's, I mean. It's quite grotesque, yeah. isn't it? It's clearly not right. Um, and it's thought that this effect works in humans because we perceive faces of, as a configuration rather than as an image. So this makes us more sensitive to differences in configuration, which means that we can recognise individuals. So the distance between the eyes, the angle between the edge of the lip and the edge of the eye, those sorts of things. Instead of storing it as a picture, we store it as, as a set of rules. And I have to ask, why is it called the Thatcher effect? Do we have any idea of that? She doesn't have her eyes upside down, did she, Margaret Well, actually, it was first discovered using a picture of Margaret Thatcher. Oh, I see. And I I first saw this with a picture of Elvis, but uh, it's obviously not called the Elvis effect. Excellent. Um, And who'd have thought that Margaret Thatcher would have been terrorising people for all these years? (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Um, And how how on earth did they go about testing if monkeys respond the same way? They don't go, oh, that looks awful. How do you actually do that? Well, the idea is that if the monkeys react like we do to these Thatcherized pictures, then that proves 
that they also see faces as a configuration rather than as an image. So to test it, the researchers showed some rhesus macaques, some pictures of other rhesus macaques' faces. Not, not Margaret Thatcher. No, not Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> okay. um, some of them were normal and some of them were Thatcherized, And they monitored how much attention they paid to each set of images. So once they'd got used to being shown photos, they actually showed no more interest in upside-down Thatcherized images than they did in upside-down normal faces, or in fact just normal faces. So they weren't really paying attention. But as soon as you turned it the right way up, so we get the reaction that you had there sort of discussed, they paid a lot more attention to them then. Now that suggests that they do detect faces as a configuration and that they obviously think there's something going on there that warrants their attention. And that suggests that this configurative way of looking at faces must have evolved at least 30 million years ago in our common ancestor with the macaques. And how about other animals? Do we know if anything else has the same face recognition ability? Well, not many studies have been done actually but previous studies have shown that thatcherized images have no effect on pigeons or on baboons and the baboons may seem to contradict this the, the results we've got here with rhesus monkeys however the baboon study was published uh, back in 2008 in the american journal of primatology and the animals were extensively trained with actually a small set of images so they may have stopped responding to them as faces and started just looking for clues in the images and so it may not actually represent the same spontaneous effect that we just heard from you And uh, the researchers said that this direct evidence of configural face perception in monkeys collected under testing conditions that closely parallel those used with humans indicates that perceptual mechanisms for individual recognition have been conserved through primate cognitive evolution. That sounds fantastic and does explain why this chap in front of me does look so terrible. (laughs) There is a picture on our homepage right now if you want to go and have a look on thenakedscientists.com and just have a look at the different faces and see which ones look normal, which ones look grotesque and then just sort of turn your head upside down and see what happens. It's pretty amazing stuff. Anyway, as as we said, I'm going to stay in the animal world with my first story about serial killer sharks. Scientists have shed light on how those iconic ocean predators, the great white sharks, go about killing catching their prey. And it turns out that they have something in common with human serial killers as well. And it turns out that they actually lurk around in spots that don't necessarily guarantee them the best chance of encountering a seal, which is their favourite food, but they also try and minimise the chances that the seals will spot them before they launch an attack. And they also take into account um, where other sharks are as well. How on earth do you study all of that? You need to know surely where all the seals are, where all the sharks are, and it's all underwater, so it's not like you can just watch from above. Well, actually, you can. I mean, (laughs) this study, um, which was led uh, by Neil Hammerschlag, a PhD student from the University of Miami in the US, and they took advantage of the way that great white sharks, um, in particular in False Bay in South Africa, attack their favourite food, the cape seals. And what they do is they target young solitary seals who are at the surface of the water. And at low light levels, so in the morning, perhaps in the evening, they lurk around on the sea floor and they stalk up on um, an individual seal before ambushing it um, with a sudden vertical rush that propels both the shark and the seal sometimes out of the water. You might have seen that on some TV documentaries. It's quite extraordinary. They can actually leave the water completely because it's such a big burst of energy. It's one of those photos and one of those shots that every wildlife photographer that works on the seas must want. Absolutely, indeed, yes. And you might say, well, that's a bit of a strange way to attack. It's a lot of energy required in that, but it's that it's um 
the best strategy for um, sneaking up and delivering a single fatal bite to those seals. So, so what they just watched for these particular attacks just by staying on the surface, and then so what does it tell us something if you know where they took place? That's right, indeed. They they saw three hundred and forty shark attacks from just boats on the surface, and then they mapped those out with GPS units. So they knew exactly where they were, and then they analysed the data rather cleverly. With they teamed up with a criminal justice expert called Kim Rosmo, and uh, who. That, that uh, they used a set of um, computer software that's been developed to study geographic patterns in human crimes, and that includes terrorist attacks and serial killers. And it's a process called geographic profiling. And by looking at where particular crimes, a serial, a series of crimes takes place, say murders or arson, terrible things like that, the software actually narrows down anchor points, which are possibly where this criminal lives, maybe where they work, but it tends to really pinpoint where they're actually having that activity. So Hammerschlag and his colleagues put the same shark data into this, um, this software that's hunting out human criminals as well. But I guess the, the real question here is, do sharks behave in the same way that human serial killers do? Well, actually, they kind of do. We talk about these anchor points, and it's the bigger, older sharks that seem to have these particular areas that they hang out in. And they, in fact, are the best places to be to attack the seals. It's about 100 metres away from where the seals congregate, so they don't hang out right where the seals are, because they'd scare them away, and that'd be no good at all. But they sort of lurk around the edges and then pick off individual seals that will stray away from the main group. And the interesting thing is, when they looked at the differences between smaller and, oh, and larger sharks, it's the smaller, young ones that actually they hunt over a much wider area and they don't get to use these really good spots these good anchor points that the big sharks use and that really hints that as they gain experience as they get older the sharks learn how to refine their search patterns and also they're probably more aggressive and they can keep out the little ones from those best hunting spots so it's really kind of helping us to unveil some of the mystery behind these incredible predators and just how they go about catching their prey and perhaps it helps us understand a little bit more about where we shouldn't hang out I mean, where we <laughs> We shouldn't go surfing and swimming anywhere near those anchor points, I think, where those great white sharks tend to hang out. It's worrying to think of sharks as honing their killing abilities like that. And now I'm going to go to an animal that, that is far, far less dangerous. In fact, the worst thing that these are likely to do is poo on you as they fly past. I certainly sure. don't like them very much. I'm sure that's happened to a lot of us. And this is actually a first study of its kind, and researchers have recorded what's going on in the humble homing pigeon's brain during flight. Now, writing in the journal Current Biology, researchers at the University of Zurich wanted to know if familiar landmarks could be associated with changes in brain activity. So the exact methods that homing pigeons use to find their way home are still actually a bit unclear, even though we've had years to study this. There's some evidence that they rely on the sense of smell. There's some suggestion that they rely on the position of the sun, the Earth's magnetic field, or familiar landmarks in order to track their way home. But because they're so versatile, it makes it really difficult to study, because even if you know exactly where they've been it's really hard to say what method they're relying on at any particular part of the journey. So what was this study doing that was new to help us understand more about this? Well, they actually fitted the pigeons with a very small electroencephalogram, or an EEG. It weighs less than two grams, so it wasn't really a problem for the pigeons. And that records electrical activity in the brain. And they combined that data with GPS data for their flight paths. And so they were able to map brain activity onto geographical areas of interest. The pigeons were monitored as they flew from a release site 
all the way back to their loft. That's incredible. So they're carrying not only a GPS to track them, but they're looking inside the brains at the same time. So what did what did the researchers find out from that? Well, there were two distinct levels of brain activity they found. There was a middle frequency response, which happened when the pigeons were looking at something, and they checked this as well with pigeons in captivity. And there was also high-frequency brain activity, which seemed to correspond to familiar objects. Um, and so this suggests that it's sort of additional thinking. So you've got the one set where they're seeing something, and then this higher frequency where you've got... The additional cognitive processing going on. Now, these results mean that we can use the record of brain activity to identify the areas that are important for pigeon navigation. And we would never have been able to determine them necessarily from GPS data alone. So this gives us a real insight and a unique insight into how birds navigate in the real world. Now, interestingly, there were a few bits of the journey where they found this unexplained brain activity. And this is the sort of thing that can really kill off a project. We just, I, I don't know why we've, we've picked up this signal. And it, it seemed to coincide with places that were so close to their loft that they couldn't possibly be useful for navigation. There was something else going on. Um, the researchers called it a riddle. They call it a riddle in the paper, which is a nice thing to see. And it's one that they only solved when they went to actually visit the sites that the pigeons were looking at. One was a farm and the other one was a barn. And both of them contained large colonies of feral pigeons. So clearly oh, all of nice. these other pigeons down there had caught the study pig- pigeon's attention, perhaps looking for their mates or perhaps looking for their next girlfriend. Excellent. That is incredible stuff indeed, to follow what's going on inside a pigeon's brain as you let it fly around. That's fantastic stuff. Well, finally this week, I'm going to stick once more to the ocean world. Sorry about that. But if you could be any animal in the world, I bet there's lots of you out there who would choose to be able to swim through the sea as skillfully and effortlessly as the dolphins. I certainly would love to be able to do that. And now scientists have uncovered the secret behind some of the dolphins' amazing aquatic acrobatics. They have flippers, it turns out, that work in the same way as a delta wing and those are the characteristic triangular shaped wings on fighter jet planes and also on that amazing feat of 20th century engineering concord okay so, so going back a bit we've already had people sat on boats watching sharks jumping out of the water D- did they do the same sort of thing again did they go out and watch dolphins in the world no not for this study they stayed quite dry in fact and this the research team led by lawrence howells and paul weber from duke university scanned the shape of uh, seven different species of dolphins fins they were included the amazon river dolphin the pygmy sperm whale and the striped dolphin and what they did actually is they took uh, fins from dead dolphins they didn't kill any dolphins for this study don't worry they were already dead they were either the museum specimens or animals that had unfortunately been stranded on beaches and they put these inside a computer tomography or CT scanner and that produced detailed three-dimensional pictures of those fins. They made models based on those pictures and then put them inside flow tanks to see how they performed. Oh, OK. So, so once they put them in a flow tank, what did they actually want to measure? Well, what they, it's quite clever, actually. They, mo- they mount these flippers onto a set of special weighing scales, essentially. And what that does is measure two different forces that are really important in flying, because, in fact, dolphins are essentially flying underwater, not swimming. And that's the lift and the drag generated by the flipper at different angles of attack. So what's really going on, the secret behind flying, is the shape of the flip flippers or the wings, if, you, if you're a bird, and that they're tear-shaped. So as air or water 
flows over the wing. It has further to travel over the top than under the bottom of the wing and it speeds up and essentially this means it creates lift, pushes the wing and that's pushing the wing or the flipper upwards. And to be stable in water, the fin needs to be able to generate enough lift to overcome the drag and that's a force that goes backwards trying to push the fin backwards because of the friction that encounters with water. And this really does sound like we're talking about birds, doesn't it? We're it is, it's amazing. And drag yeah. mm-hmm. and, and wing shapes and so on. But uh, surely in water, the problem is going to be the amount of drag, much more drag than air. So how much sort of drag and lift are they measuring in, in the different flippers? Well, absolutely. Well, water's more viscous and so on, so, so it's different, more difficult to push through it. If you try to wade through water, you know that's very different to sort of walking just on land. Um, and in fact, it was the difference between the different species that was interesting in what they found here. Some species of dolphin and whale seem to perform much better than others, and it's all based on the size and shape of their fins. And it was in fact the familiar bottlenose dolphins that generated the greatest amount of lift, while the least efficient fins actually belonged to the uh, the harbour porpoise and the Atlantic white-sided dolphin. And some of the dolphins have flippers that act in a very similar way to the triangular swept back wings of fighter jet planes. And that's the sort of configuration that leads to additional lift through something called a leading edge leading edge vortex and that's essentially a swirl of air around the front edge of the wing and that helps to create even more lift and why I think planes like Concorde could fly so fast through the air and really this all goes to help explain just how some of the dolphins can swim incredibly quickly indeed up to 20 miles an hour and they were speeds that until now really seemed to be quite theoretically impossible because of all that friction and drag from the water but now we have a little bit more of an idea of how those marine mammals keep swimming against it and, and how they do it's really rather fantastic and yes I wish I wish I could swim like a dolphin. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> Can I have that, please? So the next time you see things like dolphins and they look like they're flying gracefully underwater, you're actually a lot closer to the truth than you thought. Excellent. There's also been some fascinating news this week about Enceladus, one of Saturn's moons. There's evidence for a liquid ocean beneath the icy crust, and this could well have all the ingredients required for life. Really exciting news. And I've been looking at another study here which could provide hope for people who suffer from appendicitis, which is a new test looking at proteins in the urine which can really help nail down whether or not they should have their appendix out because appendicitis is the top reason why kids go to hospital and quite often they have their appendix out when they don't need to or they have them out a bit too late after they've already ruptured and that can be really dangerous so you can read about that and lots of other science news stories on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news read the references and find out the facts all our programs are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now, Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to the year 1869 and this week in science history, which saw the birth of influential embryologist and Nobel Prize winner Hans Spemann. This week in science history saw in 1869 the birth of Hans Spemann, a German embryologist who won a Nobel Prize for his work on embryonic development and discovery of organiser areas in the embryo. Spermann was born in Stuttgart to a publisher and his wife. After attending school and doing a year's military service, at the age of 22 he attended the University of Heidelberg to study medicine. Two years later, he moved to the Zoological Institute of Würzburg, where he began his career in examining cell lineages, heredity and embryo formation. In the first few years of the 20th century, as a professor of zoology at the Zoological Institute in Freiburg, Speyman's work began to focus on the formation of the embryo and the groups of cells in the embryo that would become particular tissues in the adult and how to extract and study them. In vertebrates, after an egg has been fertilised, the newly formed embryo begins to divide until it forms a ball of cells. 
As these cells all migrate around the ball, they form what is known as the gastrula stage, with chemicals released at different parts of the embryo telling the cells where to go and what to become, muscles, nerve cells and so on. The part of the embryo that Speyman worked on is known as the dorsal lip. A group of cells on the dorsal lip, now known as Speyman's organiser after Speyman's discovery, causes the formation of a structure called the notochord. This tells other cells around it to form the nerve cord, i.e. the spinal cord, and groups of cells called somites that will become the muscles, parts of the vertebral column and the skin. So essentially, this organiser determines which part of the embryo will become the back or dorsal side of the developed animal and tells the cells around it what structures and tissues to form, a process known as dorsalization. In order to prove that it was indeed this area of the embryo that was causing the dorsalization, Speyman and his PhD student, Hilda Mangold, transplanted a group of cells from the dorsal lip onto the opposite side of a second host embryo. They used different species of salamander as the donor and the host, chosen as their coloration was different and the cells from the donor and the host could be told apart. What they found was extraordinary. Where they had implanted cells from the donor's dorsal lip, a second notochord formed, which told the host cells to form a second spinal column and set of somites on the opposite side to its original ones, basically forming a Siamese salamander with two spinal columns, two heads and two tails but sharing a single belly. This proved that something in that group of cells on the dorsal lip was responsible for organising the surrounding cells to form dorsal structures like the nerve cord and the somites, hence why Speyman termed the group of cells an organiser. This work took Speyman and Mangold the best part of 10 years to complete and it was published in full in late 1924. Tragically, Hilda did not live to see the publication as she was killed in a domestic explosion in September of the same year. The work they had completed together led to Speyman receiving the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1935. Speyman continued to study different organisers as well as pioneering techniques that were the first step towards cloning right up until his death from heart failure in 1941. His discoveries led on to further investigations into organisers. For example, we now know the exact chemicals that are released by Speyman's organiser that cause nerve and somite formation. Chemicals with names like noggin, cordin and folistatin. All these chemicals are, evolutionarily speaking, pretty ancient. Similar versions are found in all vertebrates and in arthropods such as fruit flies. The ability of cells in an early embryo to know whether they should form back or front structures and tissues is clearly essential for the development of an animal, and so the chemical mechanisms behind it are thought to have evolved in our common ancestor with arthropods over 500 million years ago. Speyman's work throughout his life broke new ground and has been fundamental to our understanding of how dorsal structures of an embryo are formed. The Nobel Prize was a fitting reward for years of hard work into embryonic development and it is tragic that his student and colleague Hilda Mangold, who helped him complete the work, did not live to see their success. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how this week in science history saw the birth of Hans Spiemann, who went on to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1935 for his discovery of the effect now known as embryonic induction, or how cells in an embryo are directed to form certain tissues and organs. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. 
If you enjoyed the news splash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast. Every week we bring you the latest in science news, interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can have a go at at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.